Thanks, Jennifer. It's good to have you back, and uh, I'm excited. Uh, elders are excited about the possibilities for uh, increased cooperation with Bridge of Hope. All right. Well, it's good to be with you. Good to see some people that we haven't seen for a bit. Uh, welcome, welcome back, and uh, some new faces as well. Uh, that's very uh, encouraging. We hope you're going to have a good day with us. We're starting a new series today that, uh, without much uh, cleverness, we're simply calling That They May Be One, which is actually a phrase extracted from John chapter 17, where we're going to begin our series. <clears throat> As the title suggests, the series is one that focuses on Christian unity, and we'll be looking at a number of different passages. I've got, uh, I've got Todd Mangum scheduled to help us out on thinking through some of the issues uh, raised by this, and some other things are going to break us up and extend the series. We have, uh, in two weeks, you, you probably saw the email that uh, Aaron Maservi the uh, candidate that we're uh, looking at for uh, the pastoral position here uh, will be with us that weekend. He'll be preaching, and uh, so that will slow our series down. Then we have Easter coming in there, but, uh, but this is going to be something that ties us together with a lot of stuff to think about over the next uh, couple of months, I suppose. <clears throat> so today... We are looking at the final prayer of Jesus. It's the longest recorded, recorded prayer of, uh, of our Lord that we find in the Gospels. And uh, it has a lot of material in it. We could spend weeks just on the prayer, but we're just going to take today. Uh, quickly, though, what is this prayer about? Well, the first five verses of the prayer have to do with the relationship of Jesus to his Father and uh, the reason that he came into the world. It's a prayer for himself. He asks the Father to glorify him so that he in turn may glorify God through his death and resurrection. Typical of, of John's gospel, you always have this uh, theme of irony or paradox. So here's one of the great paradoxes, see, that Jesus and his Father think that the way for Jesus to be glorified and for God to be glorified is to engage in this death on the cross, which of course is, in the eyes of the world, all about shame and degradation. And Jesus and his Father look upon it as the means of glorification or exaltation. So that's a theme that runs through the gospel. The second section of the prayer is a prayer that he prays for his disciples. He asks the Father to protect them so that they may be one. There's the unity theme already coming through. And to sanctify them, which, which I think in, in John, in the prayer, means something like... Uh, keeping them focused on the task that he's called them to. And, uh, and they're to be sanctified, they're to be focused 
through the truth of God's word. And then the last section of the prayer, which is where we want to focus our attention today, is that he extends this prayer beyond his immediate disciples to all those who will come after, who will believe the word about Jesus, the good news, as a result of the witness of those original apostles. So that's what we're going to focus on. Follow along as I read these verses. My prayer is not for them, that is for the original disciples, alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, so that the world may be brought to, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Well, if you're like me, when I read through this prayer and try to think about it, I feel like I'm being uh, assaulted by a, a kind of verbal, conceptual machine gun because because one idea uh, hits me right after another, and, and I often have to stop when I read it just to slow things down and try to get a grip on what Jesus is saying. It's a very profound prayer. We're going to be uh, quite selective this morning, and uh, we're going to focus on basically a couple verses. So you can see what I've highlighted in yellow. I think this is the theme, especially for the conclusion of the prayer, as Jesus looks ahead to all those, including us, who will become believers. His prayer is that all of them, all who believe through the message of the original apostles, that all of them may be one. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And then that same idea is picked up again in verse 22. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. 
So there's our theme for actually this whole series, but it's the theme of this prayer, and uh, we want to talk about it. So the first obvious question coming to my mind is, uh, why should we talk about this? Why is it important? And the uh, simple answer to get that started is, well, we need to talk about it and think about it because Jesus thought it was important enough to pray for. He prayed for that unity, that we, his followers, might be one. We often think of the last words of a person as carrying special significance. As they face death, what's what's in their minds, in their hearts? And uh, here we've got the Lord himself facing his death. What's important to him as he prays? Now, one of the challenges with the Gospel of John is is the ways in which it is different from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? So here's one of the obvious big differences, that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the final prayer of Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's, uh, it's focused a bit differently from this, isn't it? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You don't get that in this prayer. Here, there's, in this prayer, there's no sense that Jesus is asking for an alternative way. It's simply, Father, you know, we've come to this point. Will you glorify me so that I can glorify you through my death and resurrection? What's interesting is that there's this focus on unity, which you don't get in the other. And, and exactly how this prayer connects with the Gethsemane prayer, you know, scholars have opinions dime a dozen. And it's one of those things we just don't know. But it's the same general area, right? It's right before the cross. And this, this is what he thinks about going to the cross. He thinks about the history of the church, of the disciples, and this is what he prays for us. So we, we need to talk about it, of course, more than talk. We, we, need to, we need to try to become the answer to the prayer of Jesus. I've seen a few people who have called this prayer the unanswered prayer of Jesus. And there's something to be thought about, too along that line. All right, so Jesus prayed for it. That's one of the reasons. But the other reason is that, uh, and and undoubtedly he's aware of this, right? The, The reason we need to talk about it and to seek God's help for it is that unity in the world is under assault. It's it's under assault I would say the image I want to use today is because of the, of the influence of the world being a centrifugal force on the people of God. So, 
you have to go back to your high school physics. Right? There's centrifugal force and there's centripetal force. If you uh, go to Dorney Park or someplace like that, you, you, you might find a machine like what's pictured here. <clears throat> a kind of a whirly gig thing with, uh, with seats and cables and it spins. You used to have one of these years ago at Willow Grove Park for those old timers. It even had rudders on the front so you could steer them up and down. Oh, they were a blast. Right, Charlie? They were a blast. Almost as good as the Thunderbolt roller coaster. Not quite. So, so that's how they work. They spin, and the faster they spin, the farther out the seats go, right? And what pushes them out is the centrifugal force. Now, that could get really bad, except that there's also an, a centripetal force which pulls the other direction. In this case, the centripetal force is represented by the cables down to the seats. And as long as those are balanced, the seats go around the circle. But now suppose there's a weakness in one of the cables and the speed picks up and you get to a point where the centrifugal exceeds the centripetal, now you've got a problem. <laughs> and it, and it's, a, it's a real problem. It's a destructive problem. When I was uh, just a kid, I had a, uh, a great uncle Sam Detweiler was his name, and uh, he had a dairy farm over in Bedminster Township, not too far away from here, and Sam was a, an energetic, impatient, I think, Detweilers tend to be impatient, that's <laughs> part of my DNA, and uh, he was impatient, but he was inventive, see? So he figured out all kinds of stuff that were labor-saving devices. He designed, on his own, he designed, designed a mechanical manure cleaner before any of those things were even sold commercially. He just, he got the idea, he figured it out, and he played around with, with parts, and he built it himself, and it worked. It's the kind of guy he was. Well, like I said, he, he was always looking for a better way to build a mousetrap. And uh, in those days, you have something, you don't see him around much anymore except at maybe at antique stores. But he had a, he had a grinding wheel. And... Uh, not, you know, one of the electrical ones that you flip a switch, but this was a, a mechanical-driven uh, grinding wheel. They were about this big and maybe four or five inches thick, and they were set up kind of like a, a spinning wheel, right? You had a, they were vertically set up, and then you had a pedal arrangement on them and a seat, and you, you sat on the seat, and you pump the pedal, and that thing would start to turn. Slowly turn, and then you could take 
your scythe or whatever kind of blade you want to sharpen, and you could work it at sharpening. So he had one of those. And, uh, of course, he liked to build better mousetraps, and he liked to save himself some time. So he got the idea that he could rig this thing up and uh, make it go faster, which means he could grind stuff more quickly and easily. So what do you do? Well, he got himself a, uh, an electric motor and some pulleys, and he rigged it up to that puppy, and, and he got it spinning. That was going to work. And uh, flipped a switch, and it started going, and he got ready to, to sharpen blades. He may actually have started doing it. I, I never heard the details that closely. But what happened was that, I mean, those were old-fashioned wheels, right? That got spinning to a point where the centrifugal force outweighed the centripetal force holding that wheel together, and that exploded in his face, and he was killed instantly. So, so this thing about forces, right, it's, it's pretty significant. A lot of danger there, and Jesus knows about that. That's why in this prayer, he prays for protection for his church for his disciples, protecting them from the world because the world is filled with, let's call them, centrifugal forces. And uh, if those centrifugal forces are allowed to grow strong enough, then things blow apart. And it's terribly destructive. Now, one of the reasons I, I've been thinking about this and <clears throat> feeling like I wanted to talk, for us to talk together and think about unity is that I believe we have come through, and to some extent are still in, a period of, uh, at least for most of our lifetimes, unprecedented centrifugal forces working in the church. And they're not just in the church, they're in the culture at large, right? Because, because God's great enemy, who Jesus talks about in this prayer, right? He says, keep, the, keep them by your word, uh, protect them, protect them from the enemy. Our enemy is all about centrifugal forces blowing things up. He's about chaos. He's the master of chaos. And this is not the only time in the history of the world that's been seen, but, but we're feeling it in ways that are pretty powerful. Look at the international scene. I mean, just, just think about the way Ukraine is dominating the news right now, right? And what's the potential there? There's already chaos in that country. But we, we all kind of sense that for all of Europe and indeed for the world, there's a potential for destructive 
chaos here, maybe on a level that we haven't seen since the run-up to World War II. It's, uh, it's extraordinarily bad. And, and so the enemy works to produce chaos in the world. <clears throat> but, but that chaos in the world then is also very much in his purposes to bring that into the church, to bring it into the life of disciples. And he can do that by fear. Fear is one of the great promoters of chaos. The, uh, the political situation in our country over the last number of years, very productive of chaos. Centrifugal force pushing people apart. Even, even within the church, right? It's happening in the culture, but it's happening in the church. So people get pushed apart by the forces of politics, particularly nasty politics, and we've just seen a whole lot of that. And then to all of that, we add COVID. COVID, which which has, out of protection, has pulled us apart more. We haven't seen as much of each other. That's not good. And, and then COVID itself has gotten politicized. So we got the maskers versus the anti-maskers. And the vaccine people, those that don't, want to get a vaccine. These are all centrifugal forces. See, we don't, have to, we don't have to sort out all those questions or say, here's the right answer because we'll never agree on it. But we need to recognize that we recognize what those things are doing to us at least potentially. There's not some inevitability that, pol that politics has to blow us apart, right? But the potential is there. That's the centrifugal force. Now, the question is, is there sufficient centripetal force pulling the other way to keep us from blowing apart? And uh, the answer is that too frequently, the answer is no. Those other forces have taken over. All right. So that's the why. Now let's think a little bit further about what is this unity that Jesus prays for? Well, it's the unity that Jesus has with his Father. Here's our our medieval icon of the Trinity, right? Uh, Jesus in this prayer doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit, but he has talked about the Holy Spirit in the chapters immediately preceding this, so that's something we could keep in mind. But, but let's say it's the unity that Jesus has with his Father and with the Holy Spirit, and that's, uh, that's talked about, he talks about it in verse 21 where he says that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us, 
So the unity Jesus is thinking about is a unity that is modeled on the relationship that he has with his Father. Say, well, what what is that unity? And uh, and I'll just quickly list four things here that we will probably come back to at various times later in this series. But it's certainly a unity of love. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And that love draws them together in this partnership that Jesus is talking about. And so we're not surprised that a couple chapters before this, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm giving you a new command, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says something that's very similar to this prayer. He says, by this, by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples. So, the Father and the Son are united by love. They are also united by truth. That's why in verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them, keep these disciples focused on what is important, but do it through your truth. And your word is truth. So, we can say to ourselves, well, this unity that Jesus prays for is a unity in truth, and we'll need to think about that, because that's a tricky question, in fact. And it's so tricky, I thought, well, I'm not going to touch that one. I'm going to ask Todd to come and <laughs> handle the difficult questions. And if, if I think it's really tough, then I can interview him and put him on the spot, because he, he might want to miss the tough questions. So, we'll need to think about truth, right? Because the unity of father and son is a unity in truth, and, and ours is to be as well. There's a unity of purpose. All that the father and son are doing are geared toward a purpose. What does he say in verse 2? For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. The purpose that unites the Father and the Son is the purpose of redemption, of salvation, of reaching out to a lost world and bringing them eternal life and bringing them into that circle that is represented by our diagram there. To give them eternal life, which we've said before. What is eternal life? It's the life of God Himself, it's the life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit shared together. And the purpose of this prayer and the purpose of what Jesus and the Father are doing together is to bring people into that sphere of life. And for that reason, then, it's also a unity of action. The Father and the Son work together, and that shows up in uh, numerous places So, in verse 8, Jesus says, I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. There's a a unity of revelation. The Father reveals certain things to the Son, and the Son, in turn, reveals those things to his disciples. And... uh, 
And so it goes in, in verse 12 and 18. We won't spend time for that. But this is the unity. This is a start for us to think about this unity that Jesus prays for. It is not just feeling good about other people. It's not sitting around a campfire, strumming on a guitar, and singing kumbaya. Although that's not a bad thing to do. But that's not the unity that Jesus talks about. Because that's fairly easy, but what he's talking about is heart. Let's ask the why question. Why does he pray for this unity? Why is this among his last words? Well, because in fact, we don't do it well. That's why he prays for it. We don't do unity well. That's part of what the, the last couple years has shown us, huh? We've got Christians all over the place, including in our congregation. We have some Christians who won't talk to other Christians. They avoid other believers because we don't know how to do unity. The centrifugal forces that are pulling us apart are stronger than the centripetal forces that bind us together. Jesus knows that. Even when we're shooting at the target, we still miss. But if we're not keeping it in mind, if we don't even know what the target is, well, then we're in big trouble. Now, this, this is something I think comes and goes in the history of the church. Sometimes believers have done better. They've been closer to being the answer to Jesus' prayer, where at other times we're very far from answering his prayer. <clears throat> so, in the early centuries of the church, the reputation that Christians had was a reputation for unity. Tertullian was one of the bright <clears throat> uh, writers, apologists for Christian faith. He wrote around the year 200. <clears throat> and, and Tertullian tells us that even among the pagan opponents of the faith. Even in a time of persecution, there were pagans who recognized in the church something very powerful, who said, see how they love one another. And, and even through persecution and, and at times great opposition from the Roman Empire, the Christians slogged it through, loving one another. And the result was that about a hundred years after this, the emperor himself converted to Christianity. And gradually the empire was, uh, it's hard to know exactly how to call it, but it was, it was Christianized in some sense. There was a powerful effect, right? 
See how they love one another. I recently saw a little note on Ed Litton, who is the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptists uh, were, I think they still are, the most populous Protestant denomination in America. And it's a, it's a conservative denomination, a Bible-believing, gospel-loving denomination. And uh, this year, the president is Ed Litton. He's a pastor from Alabama. <clears throat> and he was being interviewed, and he was talking about some of the strengths and uh, good things about the Southern Baptist Convention. But I was struck when he said that there is one thing that he never hears about Southern Baptists. No one says, oh, how they love one another. Pretty striking, huh? And he's obviously alluding to Tertullian's quote. And what he's saying is, for all the good stuff that I see in the denomination, this is still a glaring weakness. Now, I don't, I, I pick that out because it's interesting to hear him say it, but this isn't just a Southern Baptist problem, friends. This is a problem for, what shall we say, the evangelical Bible-believing church in America today. There are exceptions, but the exceptions prove the rule. That for the most part, we are not known among our non-Christian neighbors. We are not known as the people who love one another. We are not known as the people who are marked by unity. In fact, more frequently, I think we are seen as people who are divisive and argumentative and angry and fearful and a whole host of things. No one says, oh, how they love one another. So that's, that's one of the reasons that Jesus prays for unity, because we don't do it well, and he, he knew that. He knew how easily the centrifugal force would overpower the centrifugal. <clears throat> Here's the other thing, and uh, this may be the most important thing I have to say this morning, so... <clears throat> Fasten your seatbelts. For Jesus, evangelistic effectiveness is tied directly to the practice of unity. Notice, notice the yellow. See, before we highlighted the immediately preceding verses as central to the prayer. So verse 21, we highlighted 
that they, all of them, may be one. But now notice this purpose clause. Purpose or result. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be one, Father, so that the world may believe. And then he says it again, just in case we missed it. See? Verse 23. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity with the result that. It's the same kind of phrasing that you have in verse 21. With the result that the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them. You probably have a concern. I have a concern that our, that our nation... Western culture is drifting farther and farther away from the gospel. We'd like to see more people come to Christ. Churches grow now in our country more often by by taking members from other churches. That's, That's the way you grow a church in America. For the most part, you don't grow it by seeing people come to Christ. Now, why is that? Do we need to juice up the message so it captures people better? Do we need to change the music so it's more attractive? Do we need more programs? Well, the right place, time, all those things can be helpful, right? But The problem is we can miss the forest for the trees. Or however that works. We can miss the most important thing. The thing that Jesus prayed for. What he said was directly linked to people coming to know and believe the truth of salvation. And that is that the people of God demonstrate that there's something so real in their lives. So powerful that it can overcome the forces of chaos that normally blow them apart. Their oneness in Jesus. And that's why Jesus prays this prayer. So, the takeaways, friends (laughs) unity among disciples leads to faith among the people of the world. They see it. They understand it's something different. And yes, let's be honest, unity is easy to talk about, but it's hard to practice. It's hard to practice because the world is powerful. All those forces of chaos, they come in and do their work unless we are attuned to what Jesus wants and open to his word and open to his spirit. Otherwise, we're dead in the water. Let's pray. Lord, 
Thank you for the reminder that you gave in those last hours of your life. That your people would be in danger in the world and yet you have prayed for us and you've given us the revelation of the Father and you've given us the Spirit to guide and encourage and strengthen us and You've called us to something deeply powerful and real. And uh, Lord, we don't want to miss that. And we confess that these last couple of years have been brutal. And we've gotten our eyes off, we've gotten our eyes off you, God. And we've seen more and more of the power and force of, the, of chaos around us. And, and we've succumbed so easily. Will you help us to move toward one another and toward you? And recover that unity that you died for. And that unity that the world so desperately looks for. May we be people who can demonstrate it so that, as with some of those ancient pagans, they said, see how they love one another. Amen.